join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Uh, my name's Chris Berry. I grew up on Barona Napoleon, uptown. I lived in New Orleans my whole life. Yeah. Um, in your household as a child, was uh, a music uh, prevalent? Was it your yes. parents very big music fans? My dad in particular. Yeah. Very big music fan. Music was always on all the time. What kind of music was he listening to? The Beatles are the main thing that comes to mind. Yeah. A lot of Allman Brothers. Mm -hmm. uh, Yellow Submarine was one of my kid playing songs. Sure. You know? That's good. Uh, were there any local influences that they were fans of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they would take me to see music in parks and festivals and things of that nature all the time. Okay. And this is how old? One. Really? You know, okay. from, so you from grew up I was around born. it. Yeah. yeah. Grew up around it. Grew up going to the Jazz Fest when it was just a small little festival or fair. Sure. Uh, and, and other parks, you know, bands playing in the park and, and, and fairs. A lot of outdoor music happening at that time. Yeah. Um, were you aware, I guess, or you know, how soon were you aware that um, local music was prevalent, not just, like, uh, th there was a separation between the two. In other words, Yellow Submarine was somewhere else, but we had our own uh, style of music, and we had our own musicians living in the area. How, how old were you when you realized? I would say it was a process, yeah. right? Um, I can remember having a small little transistor radio mm -hmm. next to my bed. It was an AM radio mm -hmm. as a young kid. Uh, and listening to the disc jockeys talk about music and um, not having any appreciation of the fact that the disc jockeys were local, okay. but the musicians were not. Right? Okay. So, and I, I know that as a five, six, seven, eight, nine year old, I didn't really have an understanding that the bands weren't all in New Orleans. You know, I think as a kid, you grow up with the idea that the world all revolves around you. Sure. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that the Beatles you know, live down the street or the Allman Brothers or something like that. You know, everybody on the radio is, is local, mm -hmm. literally, you know, like, like, like somewhere in the neighborhood. Um, and I guess I started to realize that that wasn't the case when I started to ride my bike Mm -hmm. and had a little freedom uh, so, you know, to go out, ride my bike without my parents. And that was probably when I was about 12, maybe 11, 12. Yeah. Uh, I was able to go further than just in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I started exploring. Some friends of mine and I would go over to Tulane, used to have big concerts mm -hmm. out in the quad <coughs> uh, on Friday afternoons, just about every Friday afternoon back then. And uh, Jimmy used to have all ages shows where you could go on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And I think that what Jimmy was doing was he would have the band that was going to play on Saturday night play, do a sound check and play in the afternoon for, for kids. And that's when I started to realize that 
we had a local music scene and that those musicians were different than the musicians that you were hearing on the radio or, or, or the mainstream records you were getting at the record store. Sure. Um, obviously, uh, looking at your career, music has influenced you greatly. Um, did the idea that we had our own local musicians kind of compound uh, your, your love for music at that age? I think so. I mean, being able to see live music is such a, a different experience Absolutely. than listening to it. I love listening to music, whether it's on my headphones or on a, on a record player or, right. or however, but, but seeing live music and live music performance in the op improvisation that comes along with it is just fantastic. Yeah. And, and I think that at a young age, I didn't understand the um, nature of improvisational music. And I didn't understand the adrenaline of the live music performance. Sure. But I did understand it innately. Like, I would ride my bike, you know, three miles to go see a live music performance mm -hmm. because I liked the experience of it, but I couldn't articulate what it was, you know, about it, it per se. Yeah, I don't think anyone could break it down into words um, aptly enough to, to convey that feeling to someone else, you know. It's right. the one thing that gives me chills. Yeah. Still to this day. Um, did, uh, did your parents play any musical instruments? Were there anybody in your family that was, uh, playing musical instruments? No. No. Not a musical, not a, not a, not a performing family at all. Okay. Just fans. Yeah. Just okay. fans. Um, that's okay. Sorry about that. Matter of fact, I need to turn my off Okay. So uh, you're getting to see live shows at Jimmy's at a young age, right? And um, you're getting to, I guess, acquaint yourself with the idea that there's a local scene, right? And um, at what point? I know this is much further down the road, or maybe you had an inspiration early on. I'm not sure. But at what point did you see yourself getting involved personally um, with any aspect or element of the local music scene? Well, I would say that. As I was in high school, I started to really enjoy going to see live music. Uh, and in college, I explored live music. Uh, and it, it just became something that grew more and more, right? Um, and, and as I started to peel back the onion of experiencing music at a different level, I wanted to add things to it. So um, I started going and seeing different bands on more than one occasion. And uh, sometimes, sometime early on, when I started going to see live music, it was just to see live music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't to see a particular band. At some point, that changed. I started knowing the bands that were playing, okay. started following where they were going to be, when they were playing, and trying to make it to, to certain gigs to see certain bands. Sure. Still going to clubs where I like just the atmosphere, like Benny's you know, on, on Valance Street but uh, to see the particular band. And then at some point, that evolved into wanting to get expressive about it and uh, almost try to help spread the word about it. Okay. And the, the, the first main thing that I did in that regard was to build the Funky Tux in 2004. Mm -hmm. and, and that was um, the idea that uh, funk music, not just New Orleans funk music, but funk music in general something that I, I'm just naturally drawn to. Okay. And I love it so much that I wanted to celebrate it. 
And when we were thinking about what type of theme to put on a float for Mardi Gras, you know, naturally funk came up. And yeah. The idea to do, we're in the crew of Tux, the idea to do a funky Tux was, uh, was what we came up with. Mm -hmm. And from there, it's just been um, deeper and deeper and deeper into uh, getting to know musicians, getting to know clubs, uh, getting to work in the space itself. Mm -hmm. Um, now, if we could back it up for a second, this is quite a long span of time between your growing love for music in college and uh, starting Funky Tux and incorporating um, local elements of music into it. Uh, in, the, in the midst of that, um, how did you, for some people, they have a natural ability to play the drums or something. So, or, you know, they, they, they like booking bands or something like that. So they kind of, they see themselves a way into uh, this machine, you know. Um, but for yourself, uh, it, it took a little bit longer because you were you were earning degrees. You became a lawyer and a CPA. And uh, what were you doing in the meantime? Did you just still consider yourself uh, a passionate music fan, or did you always want to see yourself further into uh, behind the scenes of music, if you will? Yeah. Well, a couple things. One, I'd love to have been a band, you know, if, yeah. if at all possible. My dad owned La Casa downtown in Decatur in Toulouse in mm -hmm. the 70s when I was about 11, 12 years old. And he had live bands play there. And when, when I would spend the night there, I'd go downstairs in the morning in between the, you know, bar closes at 6 a.m. and reopens at 11, turn the jukebox on and play, play the drum set that was back line there. Okay. You know, to the, drum, to, 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 the, to the music. And when I was 17, my parents got me a drum set. Or 16, my parents got me a drum set. I love playing the drums, but never got lessons and never was good enough. I, I didn't even really try to be in a band, but never really was good enough, I don't think, to be in a band. But I do have the natural inclination to want to, be part of the music, sure. and I think you get that experience when you're you're part of the live music. It pulls you Particularly in. growing up in the in the era of punk, where you know you you had that crowd experience, whether you were slam dancing or not, you had that energetic crowd experience sure. that was going on in that punk genre that that, that really was electric. Drew, sure, drew you in. Yeah. Um, I'm an entrepreneur and have been my whole life, and that was my natural inclination is okay. is to, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, even as a little kid, I was I was I played music for parties and charged people, you know, I God, I think it was sixty bucks for for two of us to go with tape decks and a mixer and and, and play music at parties. Um, as I got uh, out of law school and was a CPA. Uh, started working. I, I ventured into business. Real estate was first stuff I did. I got into restaurant bar business and um, ended up buying Jimmy's from from Jimmy mm -hmm. uh, in 1998 or 1999. That was my first sort of foray into the music business. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. and and was had no idea what I was doing. And I wasn't managing the club. My partner, Scott, was managing the club. Mm -hmm. And he had no idea what he was doing either. And Jimmy did a really good job of trying to teach us. But it was in a day and time, yeah. the late 90s, where live music in New Orleans was not what it is right now. Right. People were not going to see live music the way that they were. And they certainly weren't frequenting Jimmy's the way that they had been 
historically. And so we realized pretty early on that there wasn't a whole lot of money to be made in the live music business. And we ended up converting the club to a uh, more of a dance club for college kids. Mm-hmm. Audubon Tavern had just closed and we, we, we took over that kind of theme and converted it and then ended up selling it. So I only had it for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but it was interesting. You know, to to learn a little bit about the business, I learned enough about it to know that I we couldn't make much money in it. Right. I, I didn't want to be in it. Ever since then, I've never looked at the music business as something to make money at. Uh, anything that I've done in the music business since then has all been charitable. Mm-hmm. And maybe you know, I'd never thought about it, but maybe that Jimmy's experience was part of it. And I think the other part of it is. I've just over the years gained an, an appreciation for musicians and gig workers, and that is the lifestyle that they that they voluntarily live. Accept, yeah, yeah, they accept a lifestyle because they're committed to their profession and they're committed to their art. That that they don't um, they don't live a life that most of us have. They don't have a paycheck. They don't have. Uh, life insurance. They don't have health insurance. They don't have dental insurance. Uh, lots of times they're driving beat up cars that break break down all the time. They don't work the regular hours that we work. It's hard for them to to have a family in the type of style that a lot of people you know normally have families. Wake up in the morning, eat breakfast with your kids, that sure. kind of thing. Because they're out late, they're they're working, etc. And and the more I've gotten to know musicians and gig workers, the more I've felt like there needs to be. Two things. One, immediate support for them uh, because they are such an integral part of our life mm-hmm. in New Orleans that there there needs to be more conscious effort to support their life uh, I- any way that we possibly can. And then secondarily, I feel like people systemically, we need to work to change how musicians and gig workers are treated economically so that we value them financially at the same level that we value them spiritually or artistically. Sure. And so I've devoted a bunch of my life now to trying to do both of those things. Sure. Yeah, it's funny, uh, if you go back to the Renaissance era, people uh, in the creative arts were kind of revered. Uh, they, they had their own space uh, in their, I guess, uh, local area where um, they were kind of put up on a pedestal, right. and uh, they weren't burdened with uh, the day-to-day, I guess, trying to make ends meet, you know. Um, being that your knack was for uh, entrepreneurship, um, is this the point at which you felt like you found your way to be able to, I guess, uh, become a part of uh, the local music scene? Is that when it first? It, it really just happened bit by bit and inch by inch. Yeah. Um, one of the big turning points for me was um, for our Mardi Gras group, which I'm the captain of, that we parade four floats in. We generally have a, a function on Thursday night when most people are just coming in town or the people who are in town are getting ready to start Mardi Gras. We do something on Thursday night having a band that, that sort of breaks the breaks the ice and gets everybody together to, 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 to rev it up and start mm-hmm. start to function. And uh, before that, we had been having a, a band play on Friday afternoons to sort of start having a lunch and then having a band play on Friday afternoons to start. So I had been booking bands in association with our Mardi Gras uh, parties for a little while and, and getting to know some of them and, and was at a point where... 
Uh, I really didn't have a favorite band or like a house band or somebody I, I wanted. And I, I called a friend of mine uh, who's in the music business full time and asked him for a good young local funk band that uh, would really kick it up with our group. And he referred me to uh, this band, Soul Project. Mm -hmm. and, and I booked Soul Project to play, not knowing them at all. And uh, during the first set of their gig, I really just was 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 drawn to him, mm -hmm. and so at the set break, I spent the set break at the bar talking to Christian, their leader, and we became friends instantly. And since then, we've done all sorts of things together. You know, the next year he came and wrote on the floats with us, get a little experience of what we do Mardi Gras like. We booked him again. We started talking, and then over the next year or two, he and I came up with this idea along with our another friend Russell to do. A rolling soundstage on a float where we would have a band roll on a float that would have studio quality sounding music on the float it was really Christian's idea and Christian's like look you all put such great quality sound into your recorded music that you play on the three floats that you have yeah what what would it be like if somebody put that type of effort into the sound of a live band in Mardi Gras all the way up until this point 2018 We've been booking bands and doing things like um, booking local bands and making a big deal out of them, making posters for them, throwing posters off the floats, making socks for them, handing socks out all the time. Yeah. We, the first act we did was George Porter. We made these purple socks with George Matters and him playing the bass. And Great. I went to the jam cruise and handed out like 200 pair of them to people. Yeah. Just, just, just sort of like an emissary of New Orleans music and, and that atmosphere. You know, Christian and that relationship with Christian and sort of deciding to build the Funky Uncle is where a lot of things started. Because I don't want to build the Funky Uncle um, if we were just going to use it one time a year to parade. Right. I really wanted to build something if we were going to put the kind of time and effort into it that we could use at other times. And so my uh, my commitment from my, my people that I'm working with in my group was we would build something that we could use and take out into the public and give away free music okay. to people. Yeah. And and so that was the Funky Uncle was built with that dual intent. And I got a commitment from Barry Kern who built the float that he would take it out when we had charity events. And so we built the float, we debuted it in 2018, but then we also, that a month later, had a little jazz fest for the homeless. And that was our first event that we did where we brought the float out. We had red beans and rice and jambalaya and gumbo and we invited homeless people. We had a couple bands and we, we did this whole little event. And we started doing things like that three or four times a year. And 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 through doing that, trying to take music and, and break down some barriers in, in, in society, give it away, also get the musicians involved in some of the other things that, that we're working on and doing. Um, and, and that, that was that was the start to the whole funky uncle experience that was going along just fine until COVID happened. Sure. And then COVID thrust me into the music business like knee deep. Really? Yeah. Because um, we already had this established practice of every two or three months using the float for charitable purposes. Mm. And so Christian called me right when COVID happened and said, "Look, man, I can't work. You know, they were gigging every night on Frenchman." Uh, what am I going to do? What are we going to do uh, with the funky uncle? You know, and and 
we started talking about people were going to stream and do streaming shows. And then we got the idea we could just stream from the tux den. And we could we could use the float itself as a backdrop for streaming a show. Yeah. And he and I decided to do it. I think two weeks into COVID, we had our first show on uh, I think it was uh, April the third mm-hmm. was was the first show we had two thousand and twenty, and um, people started coming out of the woodwork when they heard what we were doing. I don't even know how they heard it. Right. You know, we were gonna we were gonna take two two iPhones and set them up. And stream a band sure. set up in front of, and set up in front of the float, and before <coughs> the time for the hit, we had a camera company, a lighting company, and all these people who volunteered, a sound company, people who heard about what we were doing, who volunteered to bring equipment and yeah. to bring people and to come and do it. And the Funky Uncle grew, what's called the Funky Uncle Live, grew out of that, and it evolved over a period of time. But through but through the Funky Uncle over a period of two years, we had a hundred and four different bands play yeah and so you know everybody was doing everything christian and i were booking the bands and dealing with the bands i would always try to get somebody to make a home-cooked meal give the bands an opportunity to come and practice and rehearse a little bit have the meal and then do the show sure which would involve the interviews and so i got to meet so many musicians that way i was a fool i thought when we first started doing the Funky Uncle, we couldn't find more than thirty bands that would be willing to come, well, w- willing to come play a show. I had no idea we'd be able to find over a hundred unique bands. Sure, yeah. I wanted to ask you: uh, Was anybody, to your knowledge, uh, live? St- like, I-, I mean, live streaming became commonplace shortly after the onset of COVID. But in the beginning, uh, I mean, this was one person's discovery of a means to an end that really caught on like wildfire and became a medium for everyone. Right. Um, had you seen that before? No. Had Christian seen that before? No. It's just something that y'all came up with on the fly. No, we, he, he just came up with the idea that we would do it over the phone and live stream it. I think when we streamed our first show, some other people had started to do it. I hadn't seen it, but people were mentioning to me that some musicians were starting to, to stream from there for the living room mm-hmm. as a means to try to make money. But as far as I know, nobody was live streaming from a club or or a venue and doing like a whole band right right because you weren't supposed to be on the street you weren't supposed to be next to people you weren't right. supposed to be with each other and we were breaking all sorts of rules by having bands play together now we did if you look at those early shows we spaced people out uh, you know in our set very far away from each other um, we even had a lot of musicians who wore masks during the performance mm-hmm. everybody would wear a mask off off stage but during the performance some people wore masks on stage but I went from the point where I was relatively out of the music business completely and and not part of it at all to talking to bands talking to agents talking to gig workers talking to cameramen talking to 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 people who work behind the scenes every day and and every day I'm on the phone talking to people and it also gave me a real real education not only in what you see when you look at the band but what's behind the band mm-hmm. you know everything that goes on to produce uh, a show okay all of all of what happens from a filming perspective what happens from an audio perspective what happens from a lighting perspective the venue how you have to have how you have to deal with the venue and mm-hmm. i just uh like a little kid in a candy store you know i was just eating it up 
And I think part of part of what allowed me to explore it with such innocence was the fact that I wasn't making money at it, that it was completely a charity. There was no profit-driven motive whatsoever. And as a result of that, people seem to be drawn to it. It's disarming, I think. When, you, when you're doing it for free, yeah. it's kind of disarming. It makes you more approachable. And pe- people, people seem to be drawn to it. Sure. And before you knew it, we were giving money to Offbeat and Tipitinas and the Maple Leaf. And, and we weren't just supporting musicians. We weren't just supporting gig workers. The whole thing grew. Uh, just exponentially and you know a big component of that was Frenchie you know, I can't go much further without mentioning Frenchie um, Frenchie is also a tux float captain just like I am okay I had never met Frenchie before and our float was sitting uh, here so to speak and Frenchie's float was over here and Frenchie's got a really cool looking float and Christian said would it be cool if we put Frenchie's float and our float next to each other and we made like a V and you had two sides to to the backdrop for, for where the musicians were playing? Mm-hmm. I said, man, that sounds great. Uh, you know, it, Christian didn't know Frenchie either. So somehow we found his phone number and Christian called him and said, hey, man, we want to borrow your float. Do you mind if we move your float over and use it? He goes, well, you don't want me to come paint? Nice. <laughs> and, yeah. and we're like, sure, come paint. So by like, I don't know. I mean, these are the first 40 shows right here. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think probably by the second. Yeah, no, he painted the, the set for the second show. Uh, the Soul Brass Band. He, he was there. So, so for the second show, he was there painting. And of the 106 shows, I think he painted 89 of them. Mm-hmm. And we sold the Frenchie painting, either auctioned it on TV, or we had people who came to the den who bought them. And those Frenchie paintings um, were the single biggest source of revenue that we had during the Funky Uncle. And so he would take a, a percentage of what we sold it for, uh, always less than 50%, sometimes even 10 or 20%, just depending on the deal. And the rest of it would go to the charity, to the musicians and the gig workers. Yeah. And I fed off of his generosity and his spirit tremendously because uh, he's such a giver. And Frenchie's so well known in the music community that he became an integral part of what we did and our connection to musicians. And he introduced me to a whole lot of people and got me involved at a, at a much deeper level. Sure. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's spectacular. I was reading about his method and how uh, he kind of steals a scene in his mind, I guess, if you will, and then uh, immediately is, is putting it down on canvas kind of from memory, you know. Um, and to be doing it in the midst of, uh, of live entertainment, I think that's pretty cool, man. It is super cool. Yeah. And it shocks me how fast it can happen. Right. Right? So he takes a white canvas, generally. Sometimes it works with a black canvas. But he takes a white canvas, generally. Mm-hmm. And as you say, steals the scene in his mind. Yeah. And he starts to, to, to pencil sketch uh, the scene. Mm-hmm. And the shows mostly were 60 to 75 minutes worth of music. And in that period of time, 60 to 75 minutes, he could pencil sketch the scene, start coloring it in, and have it mostly finished, sometimes complete, yeah. by the end of the 75 minutes. That's fantastic. Just blow your mind that it could happen that fast. Yeah. And if you watch him do it, you realize that he operates at like a four times speed 
when he's in the zone of creating than anybody normally operates. I can't imagine he, a better His atmosphere. body is moving <laughs> so fast, yeah. you know, and his mind is so focused and, and centered on what he's doing. Sure. It's just beautiful. And, and, you know, it's really a whole genre of painting. The, the Frenchy COVID art from the Funky Uncle is itself a body of work mm-hmm. that is different than other Frenchy paintings. And then if you look in the Frenchy work itself, it evolves over a period of time because his float was positioned in one place for a while. He painted from the catbird seat in his float. And so there's a certain positioning to it. And then when he changed the perspective of where he painted, you can tell in the history of the paintings. And then there's certain things that he adds to the paintings that he did and didn't do. And in the end, he's experimenting with some tape and putting tape on it and painting around the tape and then taking it off and painting other things. Yeah. And so you can sort of see that experimentation at the end of it too. And it's kind of like looking at a musician's career and seeing how, or an artist's career and seeing how the music evolves over a period of time. Yeah. Frenchie's painting during COVID evolved over a period of time. And I hope that people will look back on, on this at some point uh, particularly with Frenchie's work, and say that that you know th- that they can appreciate and see um, see those evolutions. Sure. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally, in the middle of podcasts, they give you a bunch of advertisements, but on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today, we've got something a bit different, though. It is what could be a great opportunity for our Louisiana bands. I know some of our listeners are in bands. If you're not in a band, maybe you could tell your favorite band about this. I've recently been in touch with a writer-producer working on two separate projects. Riverhood is designed to run for three eight-episode seasons, all of which will only use local music. There are already plans for a second show called Bourbon Street to the Budokan, which will also use local music. So... To my Louisiana bands, this is your opportunity to get in early and submit your music. Travis Harrison is your contact, and you can send your music submissions to Travis at BeagleBay at gmail.com. Let me spell it out for you. T-R-A-V-I-S-A-T-B-E-A-G-L-E-B-A-Y at gmail.com. Good luck, everybody, and thanks for listening. And now, back to our show. It's funny that uh, he'll have a a catalog of work that's characterized by a, um, a pandemic. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, that's but right. it, it turned, he turned something, uh, something, uh, I guess, negative into a positive. But it's also ironic how all of this impacted you, I believe, and many musicians, because it was the inspiration for albums, solo albums. Um, a lot of remote work was done, but uh, albums nonetheless that maybe would have been put on hold because they were gigging live so often to pay bills, you know, and then right. when that wasn't an option, uh, they still felt the need to express themselves and did so with other means. Um, but it's funny uh, how it it actually pulled you in. You think it would disperse everyone. I mean, it did. Well, it, in it, essence, had, it yeah. had a different effect on different people. Right. Right. Uh, I'm watching this TV show right now, well, New Amsterdam on mm-hmm. Netflix, and you, you know, look at the TV personification of what it did to some people, isolated them. Um, I was not willing to stay at home you know I run a homeless organization too grace of the green light we were the only organization that fed for the first two months uh, everybody else closed oh wow so if you wanted if you wanted breakfast lunch or dinner and you were on the street you had to come to grace of the green light and so we were feeding three meals a day for 60 days 
and and I had to get out and work on that. And so between working on feeding people and working on the funky uncle, I was out all the time. Sure. And, and working all the time. And I actually was working harder during COVID than I had before uh, because there were so many challenges and I was doing new things, you know, expanding into new things. Uh, it thrust me in my life into doing 80, 90% service work and I haven't turned back since. Even though COVID has disbanded and, and fallen apart, the pathway that this has led me down, uh, the funky uncle and grace at the green light and doing mostly service work, is something that I've continued to chase that path. And I think that God has provided that for me, not as an intentional decision that I made, but just sort of a, a you know consequential outcome uh, sure. to, to the circumstances. And I've, con- I've decided to sort of commit my life to, to that now. Sure. Um, as far as the Funky Uncle goes, uh, y'all are producing albums too. I wanted to mention that. Yes. Um, yes. Tell everybody about that. Sure, sure. So uh, after we, we had gotten going for a little while, uh, there were so many individual experiences. You know, you go to a live show, right? There's some takeaway that you take away from that live show that was really significant from you. Maybe sometimes a couple of different events. After a few of these shows, we started thinking, God, it would really be cool to do a album out of some of the events of these shows that really were significant to us. Uh, Mike Quinlan, who's a, a band manager and a friend, uh, was running the record press, and Ron's record press, and so I was familiar with the record press, and uh, familiar with the work that he did, and started talking to him about the idea that we might do an album of, of cuts from, from the shows, and he was really supportive and helpful on how we could put, put together and do it, and so I went to some of my friends. Uh, who are in this Mardi Gras group that I have. We call ourselves the Fat Bankers. It's the Funky Tux group. And asked everybody to put up some money. I think we got, I don't know, 20 people to put up 500 or 750 bucks a piece and pooled that money together in order to, to come up with the cost to to actually um, have the, the, the record produced. You know, there's all sorts of things that go into sure. to making an album that I didn't know anything about before we did it. But but you know taking each of the songs and then and then going behind behind it and mixing the song to be worthy of, of being put on the album, getting them all timed correctly, doing all the artwork, writing the liner notes, uh, etc. And so we got the financing for it and did it and put it together. Um, and and then the idea is well what are we going to do with it? And so we decided that we would hand it off Mardi Gras floats would be the only way you could get the album. So it uh, just so happened, we, we were hoping that in 2021 we would parade, but we did not get a chance to parade. Right. We actually had the album done by Mardi Gras of 2021, yeah. uh, but, but we weren't able to parade. So we saved it for 2022. Yeah. And that year I was the king of tux and my daughters were the queens of tux. We had the Frenchie float and then we had our regular four floats. So we had seven floats all together at the front of the parade. We had 5,000 copies of the album, and we handed out 5,000 copies of the album off the floats. It wow. Was, it was amazing. Yeah. It was the only way you could get the, the, the hard copy of the album. You can get it electronically on Spotify or on iTunes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is the format going to be the same moving forward? Well, no. We, we stopped the weekly uh, Funky Uncle in April the 6th, 2022, mm-hmm. which was our second anniversary. And if you haven't seen that show, you ought to go check it out. It's on you. All our shows are on YouTube. 
But um, <coughs> what we did was we did a history of the artists that are on the side of the Funky Uncle. Yeah. Starting with Professor Longhair. And we had people who, if the artist was passed away, we had people who had played uh, with that artist who, who came, did a couple songs and did a little interview about that artist. And we mixed in the interviews with the songs rather than do all the, the regular format of the Funky Uncle was to do all of the music and then do the interview. But, but what we did for our second show was we did one artist at a time. So we did the music and the interview and then the music and the interview. And uh, it involves George Porter and, and, and uh, Leo Nocitelli on the stage at the same time doing meter songs, doing Alan Toussaint songs. Uh, Jason Neville getting up and singing some Alan Toussaint, and it's it's a it's a fantastic fantastic show. But we decided to stop because the whole purpose of the Funky Uncle in the beginning was to give the world some free music and give them an opportunity to get some joy in their life, while at the same time raising money for musicians and gig workers, giving them somewhere to work they didn't have anywhere to work. Well, things were opening up. There were clubs. There was opportunity to go see music. People were getting jobs. And it, 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 there was less of a need for what we were doing. But it has transformed into a couple of different things. Uh, and that is that we've been doing events for people. So we'll do a private event for somebody if they're having like a wedding and they want to have parties where we'll go out and book the musicians and make sure that you know they get they get good pay and that we get the right people placed in the right situation. We don't because make th any money. This mobile off. soundstage still exists. I want to uh, yeah, interject, yeah. sorry. But the 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 remnants of what was the Funky Uncle still exist and are still being used now for yeah, these things absolutely. that we talked about. Yeah, and even if we don't use the flow, <clears throat> right? So for example, uh, we've been doing fundraisers. Uh, Walter Wolfman passed away recently, right. and his widow asked us if we would do a fundraiser to help her pay for his medical expenses. He had cancer right before he died, right. and his funeral expenses. So we, we partnered with Tipitina's, and we did the fundraiser there. Uh, and we were able to have 65 or 70 musicians come and play for free. Uh, to, to support Walter's family and to raise money, put up a GoFundMe, and we were, were able to raise all the money necessary to pay for those medical expenses. Uh, Jan Ramsey, the longtime publisher of Offbeat Magazine, she uh, has cancer too, and she needed some experimental type treatments that, that needed to be paid for. We brought the float out to Tipitina's, and we had, we, had, we had the funky uncle float in the street, we closed off, and then music inside. We were alternating music inside and outside. Awesome. We raised a significant amount of money there. And so we're still raising money every time you turn around. We're doing something over Jazz Fest where we're, we're, we're promoting a bunch of shows uh, and raising money for the homeless mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in doing that. So we're, we're, we're still big-time members of the community. Uh, I don't, we don't give out grants like we used to because we don't have the cash flow. It's more individual-specific. Mm -hmm. But we still give out a couple. Uh, just two days ago, I got a call from a drummer that you would recognize his name, and and uh, you know he's on some hard times, and so we've got a little money left over, and I can always pick up the phone and call people and try to get them to help out when somebody's in need. Sure. So I I I think that we're the Funky Uncle family now is a place that people can reach out to when they're in need. Sure. And, and if they're in, you know, in the music community and in need, we'll find a way to help them. Sure. Um, moving forward, I wanted to talk about uh, the new 
Music History Museum yes. that uh, is planned. Um, please tell us about that. Okay. So it all comes from the Funky Uncle Live. Uh, our format was music and then an interview. And we had some, we have some great interviews. And, and in the beginning, I was just a student of sitting and listening to these musicians talk. Right. It wasn't always just about how COVID had affected them. It was about uh, their life, their influences, where they grew up, inspirations, particular albums, where songs came from, etc. You never knew where the interview was gonna, was gonna go. Sure. After seeing so many of the interviews, it occurred to me that we needed somewhere in New Orleans that could take the collective of all of this inspiration, knowledge, history from the living people and from the, the, the prior people and put it together in a curated way that can educate and inspire not only our community but the world mm -hmm. since, since you know, New Orleans music has had such a big, big impact on the entire world. And so I started, I started with the idea of doing a funk museum and and uh, doing something smaller, and I talked to anybody who would listen to me. I, I was introduced to Reed Wick, who is the local Grammy representative, but also a guitar player. He's a guitar player in the Bucktown All-Stars. Mm -hmm. And uh, we booked Bucktown All-Stars to play the Funky Uncle, and he and I became friends, and we started talking about the idea of doing this. And he loved the idea of doing it, said he'd been trying to think about doing something like this for a long time. And then he introduced me to Bob Centelli, who had left the Rolling Stone magazine to create the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then had gone and done another eight music museums after that, including the three Grammy museums. And at the, at the time that he introduced me to Bob, Bob was the uh, founding executive director of the three Grammy museums, all three of which he created. So Bob Reed and I talked, and we talked through the idea, and um, Bob loved the idea, but, but, but in Bob's mind, this museum was gonna cover all of Louisiana music and was gonna be a worldwide institution on par with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ah. And it's become that. And it, it's become that from a little kernel of a seed of an idea that's been nurtured and matured and, 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 and fed by many other great people that, that, that has evolved into a 120,000 square foot museum across the street from the convention center. It's gonna cover all the genres of Louisiana music from Congo Square until today. Mm -hmm. We've gotten a fair amount of economic support from just local music lovers and friends. The city of New Orleans is behind us. They've given us a million dollars. We've been able to do economic planning, architecture planning, all the real estate planning necessary, some spatial planning. Um, curatorial planning. We've got an advisory board of about 45 people who are in the music business and industry, musicians, teachers, every major university in New Orleans uh, and LSU are covered on, on our advisory board. And all these people are contributing their knowledge and their experience and their background into the foundation that is making this become what, what it's evolving into. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm getting to work on it, and a lot of other people from the Funky Uncle are getting to work on it, just sort of as stewards of this um, this idea of New Orleans or Louisiana music, and, and hoping uh, and, and, and trying our best to make sure that, that this gets, the story gets told in a way that is gonna do it justice, and as a, in a way that's gonna inspire uh, the future. And we're gonna do all sorts of new creative things that haven't been done in music museums before, like 
we're going to integrate live music into the museum experience. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have a stage where music is being performed all the time that the museum is open. And there are going to be parts of the curated area that are open to the live music performance. And the performances are going to be integrated into the museum-going experience. Yeah. And so this is going to give young bands, new bands, a format and, 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 and an audience. And it's also going to give museum-goers the ability to have a type of programming that's, that's very unique, that hopefully will tell the story in a, in a, in a way that's um, even better received than your tradition you know, museum experience where you just walk in and read something on a on a plaque and sure. look at look at a picture. So it's going to encompass all of Louisiana, not just New Orleans. That's right. And um, live music. Give us an idea of how uh, about the size of a project that we're talking about. What size? One hundred and sixty million dollars. One hundred and twenty thousand square feet. One hundred twenty thousand square feet. Yes. Yes, wow. it's going to be gigantic, sure. and it's going to be on par with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or the Country Music Hall of Fame. It will—it's uh, estimated to have seven hundred and twelve thousand visitors a year, which is more than the World War II Museum, but just a little bit less than the Aquarium. Sure, give you an idea about the size of the institution. That's amazing. Yeah, um, and uh, I would again—I would guess that your involvement. Um, I guess proper is you're on the board along with the 45 others, right? So we have two different boards. We have a we have a board that is the business board that runs the entity. I'm the chairman of that board. Reed okay. Wick is the is the vice chairman of that board. That has about 10 people on it, maybe maybe 12. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we have an advisory board that's doing a lot of the content creation and, and work with the subject matter of the museum. That's got about 45 people on it. Sure. Mm -hmm. Is uh, Funky Uncle going to have a, a display in there somewhere? Yeah, the Funky <laughs> Uncle's going to have. We're, we're going to. We're going to. We're planning to curate the music club slash restaurant. Will be one space. It'll be a restaurant and a club. Uh -huh. It will have things like dinner theater, where you can actually go and have a nice meal and watch uh, a performance. But it won't just be a show. We're going to have. Um, 90 minute to 120 minute uh, shows uh, at six o'clock at night that tell different stories. For example, you might be able to go on Monday night and see the story of Louis Armstrong, where you will have people who will tell you the story and intersperse music within it. Hmm. So they'll tell you where he grew up, the proximity to the museum, what, what, he, what how he learned to play, what he learned to play, maybe play an early song. Then talk about his development years and how, how he, he developed his band and started to travel and started to write, sure. play a couple more of those songs, etc. And it, it's a type of music programming that we don't really have in New Orleans. And, and we're really looking forward to being able to use that genre of education as a way to educate uh, people and to entertain them at the same time. So, so that space, the restaurant and the club, will be the Funky Uncle. And we're gonna, oh, we're cool. gonna curate it like the Funky Uncle. That's cool. And then we're gonna have a space upstairs that is very large upstairs uh, that we're gonna have a music uh, curation for up there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm hoping to do Jazz Fest up there where we curate the whole upstairs, uh, which is like a private club 
party room where you can rent it out for occasions, uh -huh. weddings, conferences, things like that. It's going to be indoor and outdoor. Uh, you could even have two bands up there playing at a time. It's going to be a really nice space. It Parties, sounds like a real versatile space. Yes. Well, it's key to the survival of museums and, and um, cultural experiences like this, mm -hmm. that they have a component that can be used mm -hmm. by the outside to generate additional sources of revenue. Uh -huh. And so Bob Centelli has been very helpful in showing us what other museums have done in the country to use their space. So it's wonderful for the community to have the opportunity to have a party as small as 100 or 200 people or as big as 1,200 people in the varying spaces that we could have in the museum. I can foresee, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night, five years from now, during high time, March, April, you know, tourist season, sure. there could be four or five different functions going on at the museum at one time. Gotcha. You know, you, you'll have the lobby, you'll have the club, you'll have the upstairs area. It's gonna have a theater that's got 250 seats. Uh, and all of those things will be integrated into opportunities for people to come in and rent the space and then also get part of our programming because you know when 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 you come to this museum to have a function uh, people are going to want to experience our local music and so that's another way for us to do the same thing the funky uncle was doing, sure and that is putting the right bands with the right people being able to, to have the right experience and make sure the musicians get paid well uh, and that and that we have an experience that is economically suitable. You know, a big goal of ours is adequate compensation for the people who work in the museum, and the people who who, who provide services for the museum. Sure. So you know, I, I want to try to make an impact also on the value that people place on what they're getting. You know, it's wonderful that you can go to Frenchman Street and see free music. I think that that's a fantastic aspect of New Orleans, but think about the other end of that. Sure. You're not paying to go in a club, so that means the, the musicians aren't getting paid unless you drink and they're getting a percentage of the bar. Right. So on a slow night, they might not be getting paid, or even, even on a big night, people aren't drinking as much, they might not be getting paid as much. People don't drink as much as they used to, maybe they drink water more now. You know, it's really tough for musicians. It's 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 hit or miss. It is a nice starting ground for some young bands, but seasoned musicians uh, and even some of the younger musicians, I think, deserve a little bit more respect. So, trying to change the value that is being charged and explain to people why you're changing the value that's being charged and how it translates into salaries or benefits or opportunities for insurance or adequate pay, things of that nature. You know, we will employ full-time sound technicians, full-time lighting technicians, full-time stage managers. They will all have apprentices that will be high school kids that come out of school that don't want to go to college, that want to learn a trade. We can put them in a two-year program, a three-year program where they can learn sighting, uh, lighting, stage, sound and they'll be able to graduate from that program after having been making a living wage and getting benefits, Beautiful. going out there into the community where they will expect a living wage and they will expect insurance <clears throat> and they'll have a skill that should be valued that way. 
Sure. And and hopefully it will work to raise the level of, of the quality of production and also raise the value that people put on, you know, one of our biggest natural resources. Sure. Yeah. I went to uh, Stax Museum in Memphis on vacation, and uh, it's a small operation, a real small place, um, but I really liked that they sat you down in the beginning and you got to see a short film that kind of informed you about not only what you were about to see, but the history behind what was left. And um, I think it's super important that museums take the moment that they have with people. You have their attention for su such a short period of time, but take that moment to educate them a bit about what it is they're seeing instead of just kind of showing them some eye candy and then you know ushering them to the, the popcorn line or something like that. Yeah. You know? So uh, that that's really cool that y'all are gonna be uh, not only educating viewers of people who are walking through the museum, but also educating people uh, properly uh, with a trade. I think that's excellent. That's right. And I think it is important too. You know, a good introduction to capture their intention, to give them a summary of what they're going to get ready to see mm -hmm. in an entertaining way. And we're already in the process of developing a storyline of how we will do our introduction, similar to what you got at Stacks. Sure. That's all happening right now. That's beautiful. Uh, the procurement of these artifacts. Right. That's got to be a monumental task. Well, it is going to be a monumental task. Um, we haven't really started at any great level. We're doing a Fats Domino exhibit okay. in October <clears throat> as sort of a coming out show of what we're going to be able to do when we open up the museum. And that's going to be at the Jazz Museum. Okay. We're, going to, we're going to accompany that with this format of telling music stories with partly oral history story and partly music. We're calling them symposiums. We're gonna have a couple of those. Right. One on Earl King and one on Dave Bartholomew. And then we're gonna have three days worth of music. We're calling that Funk Fest. We're gonna do all that in October to sort of give people a taste of, of, of what we're able to do. And in the process of trying to get Fats Domino artifacts, uh, we're, we're realizing how difficult it will be. And of course, Bob Centelli was, uh, he, developer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, part of his job was to go out and get artifacts. Mm -hmm. And he said that, uh, particularly in the South, uh, you know, Southern musicians, um, there are not a whole lot of artifacts because the people didn't understand and appreciate 100 years ago that these things were going to be valuable and they didn't hold on to them. Sure. And, you know, <laughs> suits, performance gear, things like that, those were sold, They're used by other people. And, it, and it, is, it is harder. I'm driving to Covington tomorrow to pick up a Fats Domino ticket from, uh, I think it was $2.50 for a show that occurred in 1951, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. 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 A friend of mine just happens to have this ticket signed by Fats Domino. Wow. You know? So those things are hard to find. It's but it is super cool. It's going to be an inch at a time, it sounds like. Yeah. I think. yeah. An inch at a time. Yeah. That's fantastic, man. I wish you all the luck in the world. I'm so excited about this, and I, I realize how big of a task um, this is going to be. Uh, what are your projections for uh, any kind of loose timeline that people yes. can look out? So right now we're in the funding phase. We're developing, uh, we've developed our plan. We're going out to get funding. Assuming that we get the funding we need, about October or November of 2023, we'll start planning. And that will be the detail architect and engineer planning uh -huh. on how to build the building in the way that is going to house everything. And then the detail planning on how to take all of this 
work that we've been doing, planning what's going to go in the museum, uh-huh. and really making it into like what goes in what room, right? The, the actual curation. That will take all of 2024 to do the planning, both the interior and the exterior planning. Uh-huh. And then 2025 and 26 will be construction. And so we should be opening in early 2027. 2027. And uh, you had mentioned uh, the things that you all want to include uh, in this museum. Has that been kind of laid out as far as the contents, the material, and, and the subject matter? Well, there have been a couple of different charrette meetings where we've taken many people with broad uh, breadth of knowledge from the music business and we've started to create an exhibit plan. But that exhibit plan is not like this room is going to have funk music in it, this room is going to have jazz. That exhibit plan is an outline of what should go into the museum. Like a curriculum of sorts. Right right now, we've taken each subcategory Uh of that and we've formed committees. And those committees are looking into that subtopic. For example, jazz. The jazz committee is going to look at jazz and then make recommendations to the curator on what should be included and, and, and covered. Mm-hmm. And we have people, for example, on the jazz committee who run the jazz orchestra right now or who teach jazz at UNO, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, those people are going to be involved in, in making recommendations to the curator. Then the curator will work with the property developers on how much space we have and, and, and how much space we might need for each topic and try to fit that puzzle together. And that's going to be challenging. <laughs> to say the less, put it lightly. Wow. Okay. Well, gosh, man, I, I think we about covered it. I appreciate your time, man. That's Thank fantastic. you, man. Fantastic. Uh, thanks for thanks for taking an interest in it. Absolutely. All right. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together. We push our souls out to the speakers. We look around the stage and read off of one another. And you know, after so much time, we know where the next person is going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans, and that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening.